Take your Bibles, turn with me in them to the Gospel of Matthew. A couple of months ago, we began preaching through Luke's Gospel. We pause for these next two weeks to look at what Matthew tells us about the, the next events that happened in the life of Jesus Christ in his earliest years. Having looked at his birth, we come to his young childhood. This morning, we come to Matthew chapter 2, reading together verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. Matthew writes. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to have the Bible in our own language. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege we have to gather freely on the Sabbath day to hear your word read and preach, to sing your word, to pray your word back to you. Lord, we ask that as this new year begins, you would give us grace to be like newborn babes who long for the pure milk of the word, who hunger and thirst for righteousness who desire to know you better through the scriptures. Lord God, we know that we cannot know you except through your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord Jesus, we come and pray that you would move in our hearts now, that you would fill us with the same joy the wise men had, that you would give us the same desire to worship you. Lord, that you would lay upon our hearts a longing that the nations would come and would serve you and give themselves for you and sacrifice for you and for your name's sake. Lord, do that work even here amongst us this morning, we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Imagine that you and I were teammates on the game show, $100,000 Pyramid, and that we had made it to the winner's circle. And Dick Clark back in the 70s and the 80s, or Michael Strahan today, said to us, you've got one minute, 60 seconds, 
Caleb is going to, to throw out words and phrases to you, and you have got to, to determine and, and, and say what category those words and phrases best describe. And if you can get all six of the categories, you will win $100,000. And so what if I gave you these three words? The nations, oppression, and worship. What would you say? What, what category, what topic do those three words belong to? It's probably unlikely that you would get it right. You would not get $100,000, right? Because the, the topic is this, things associated with the birth of Jesus Christ. You go, huh, nations, oppression, opposition, worship, right? How do those three things how are they associated with the birth of Jesus Christ? Well, Matthew, in our text this morning, wants you to see how and, and wants you to see that. These three things, nations, opposition, worship, they are indeed associated with Jesus' birth. Let's think about how that is so and what it matters, why it matters for us today. First, I want you to see Jesus' birth and the nations. Here in this story, a familiar story to us, in verses 1 and 2, Matthew tells us that at some point after Jesus was born, some strange men show up in Jerusalem with a very strange question. Where is the one who's been born the king of the Jews? Right? We've seen his star, and we've come to worship him. Now, to understand why these men are so significant and, and why their question is so significant, we first have to learn a little more about them, don't we? Right. Who were these men? Well, the text tells us they were wise men. The, the Greek word magi. They were uh, magi, wise men. What, what is that, though? Let's say first, they weren't kings, as the song unfortunately describes them, right? No, they were advisors to kings. They were sort of half scientists, half magicians, sorcerers. Uh, they were uh, those who would combine stargazing uh, with dream interpretation to try to interpret uh, and predict the future. It's sort of like our, our horoscopes, the Zodiac today, which hopefully uh, none of you uh, consult, right? Because a Christian has no business consulting something as superstitious and, and evil as that. So these men were wise men. They were magi. They were the advisors to kings. Where were they from? Well, uh, the, the text doesn't tell us exactly, except it does say they were from the east, right? Likely Persia or, or Babylon, uh, modern-day Iraq or Iran, uh, they were from the Orient, although uh, not the Orient that you might think of, the Far East, right? Rather, uh, the, the East, uh, of, uh, in the Middle East, right? They, they did traverse afar. Uh, they had come probably a thousand miles, like walking from Jackson to Washington, D.C., right? So you can imagine how long that trip would have taken. Uh, so that's where they were from. How many were there? Well, we often think there were three wise men, but the text doesn't say that, does it? All right, it says that there were three gifts, but it's silent in terms of how many wise men were there. Uh, it could have been three, but it also could have been 33, right? The text just doesn't say. When did they come? Right? That's another question we could ask. Well, the text says they came someday, sometime after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But notice that it could be perhaps up to even two years after Jesus was born, right? Matthew tells us in verse 11 that Mary and Jesus were in a house by this point. And, and if we go to the next passage in Matthew, we'll realize that, that Herod killed the male children two years and younger, right, based on what the wise men had told him as to when they saw the star. And so that implies that, that they arrived at Jerusalem some point within 
uh, two years after Jesus's birth. And, and of this star, what, what is that all about? All right. Well, evidently, uh, they had seen some cosmic phenomenon in the sky. Uh, it had occurred, and the Magi saw in that astral sign a, a fulfillment of the Jewish hope of the birth of the king of the Jews. It was his star that they saw. Now, they likely knew about the Jewish hope, the Jewish prophecies, because they had encountered the Old Testament scriptures through the Jews who had been sent into exile in, in Babylon right, in the, the 500s B.C., uh, they had probably read the prophecy in Numbers chapter 24 in which Balaam prophesied of a coming king with these words, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Judah. A scepter shall rise from Israel. And so they had seen this star. Now, it's possible this star was a, a natural occurrence, right? That, that, that God controlled in a supernatural way, much in, in the way that he uh, controlled the, the census uh, that Caesar Augustus took, a very natural thing, and yet he controlled it in a supernatural way to fulfill prophecy so that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So it could be just this natural phenomenon, though, as we see from our text, it, it seems to have had the capacity to guide these wise men. And so it, it does seem to indicate that this star was a miraculous phenomenon. The text tells us that they saw the star when it rose or in its rising. Interestingly, Matthew tells us nothing about the star leading them to Jerusalem. We don't read of them going outside and pointing to Herod. There it is. There's the star that we've been following all the way from, from Persia or Babylon here to, to Jerusalem. Right? And, and when they rejoice in, in verse uh, 10, when they see it again, that again seems to imply that, that they had not been seeing it all that way. Why'd they come to Jerusalem then? Well, where else would you come if you thought that the, 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 the king of the Jews had been born? You would come to the capital city of, of Israel. Uh, but then, as we see, right, the star does appear to them once more. And it goes before them until it comes to rest over the place where the child was. By means of this star, God sovereignly leads them to Bethlehem, perhaps even to the exact house right, where Jesus was living with Mary and with Joseph. So these are the wise men. These are who they are and, and where they're from and, and how many they are and where they, uh, when they came and, and what the star was all about. But what does it all matter? What's the point of all this? Why does Matthew think it's important to tell us about these magi? Well, as, as we saw a couple weeks ago when Carl preached from Matthew chapter 1, Matthew had been reading the book of Isaiah, hadn't he? He had Isaiah on his mind as he wrote his gospel. And Matthew knew that one of the great themes in Isaiah's prophecy of the coming Messiah is that the Messiah, the Christ, would be a light for the nations. A light for the nations. We saw that, didn't we, even this morning from Isaiah 60. Nations shall come to your light, we read. Go and read Isaiah chapter 2 of the nations streaming to God on Mount Zion. Go and read in Isaiah 11, or Isaiah 42 and 49, the servant songs, and how the nations will come to the Lord their God and will come to the servant of the Lord. Matthew is writing for primarily a Jewish audience, but he wants to remind his Jewish audience, do not forget 
that God promised to make Abraham a blessing to the nations. God promised Abraham that in his seed, in his offspring, Jesus Christ, all the nations would be blessed. The gospel of Jesus, Matthew is saying, is for every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus was born to save not merely the physical descendants of Abraham, but the world. And these magi, they are the first fruits of a great ingathering of all the peoples. One morning during my first pastorate in Columbia, Mississippi, one of our elders' wives was, was driving back home from running some errands, and, and she uh, lived on Big Bay Lake uh, off of Highway 98 uh, near Columbia and Hattiesburg. And as she drove over the, the, the dam, she noticed a, a small stream sort of trickling out the, the bottom of the dam. She's like, huh, that's interesting. What's that? I've never seen that before. Well, as you can imagine, in a few hours, all 7.2 billion gallons of water in Big Bay Lake destroyed a hundred houses on the other side of that dam. The, the, the small trickle turned into a flood. And Matthew wants you to see that that's exactly what is happening here. The trickle of the Magi will one day usher forth into the flood of the book of Acts, the flood that even we Gentiles are a part of. The nations are coming to Jesus even here at his birth. The light of the gospel is shining upon the nations. And now we who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus go out with our flashlights and our floodlights to shine the glory of that gospel to all the nations. What about you? As you search your own heart, do you see a desire for the lost among the nations there? Do you see a desire for the nations to be saved as you meditate upon what God has done for you through the birth and the life and the death of Jesus Christ, through his incarnate love? Do you see a heart for missions? Do you see a, a longing for evangelism? Right? Is your desire to see the gospel go to the lost around the corner and across the world, is that increasing as you've meditated upon the birth of Jesus? Matthew wants that to be the case. Do you give to missions? Well, as, as you'll see here in a moment at our congregational meeting, every time you tithe to the church, a tenth of, of that tithe, the tithe of the tithe is given to missions. Part of our general fund budget is that we would give 10% of all gifts received to missions, to ministries. But do you give even sacrificially beyond that to missions? The Lord here in Matthew chapter one is saying the incarnation of Jesus, the birth of our savior, it should lead you and motivate you to give sacrificially even beyond 10% that the gospel might spread to every corner of the world. So what's the first thing associated with Jesus's birth? The nations. But there's a second thing that we see here in this text associated with Jesus's birth, opposition, opposition. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you heard from Luke chapter 2 in Simeon's song this same theme. And now Matthew wants to make this point, doesn't he? Notice how the people respond to the Magi's question. Verse 3 tells us that King Herod, when he heard of it, he was disturbed. He was troubled. He was upset. And you can understand why. Wait a minute. I am the king of the Jews, right? I am the king 
of Israel. What's this all about? A, 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 a baby born to be the king of the Jews. These wise guys coming and telling me that there's someone else here, all right, who is, who is uh, uh, going to take my, my throne. I think not. Right? And so Herod calls the, the Sanhedrin together. He calls the, the chief priests, the scribes of the people together for a Bible study. And he asks them, you know, where is this Christ to be born? And they say, well, it's in Bethlehem. They quote from Micah chapter five. And so Herod secretly calls the Magi to him. No need to uh, alarm the populace and to stir up nationalistic zeal. Right? And he asks them exactly when did you see this star? He sends them to Bethlehem on this reconnaissance mission, uh, supposedly so that he too can worship them, worship him, the Christ child. But as we'll see next week, he actually sends them to find out where he is so that he can go and destroy him. He can kill him. You see, Jesus' birth brought out the opposition to God and to his anointed Christ that lies in the heart of every single one of us by nature from birth until the grace of the gospel captures our hearts. We are opposed to God. We are opposed to Christ. Wherever Jesus, wherever his followers go, opposition is at hand. Now, and some people... It's a deadly and direct opposition, right? It, it is a persecution that, that has no ifs, ands, or buts about it. We are opposed to the gospel. We are opposed to Jesus. We are opposed to you. If you follow Jesus, it's very direct, very uh, overt, very open and clear. But in many cases, it's dressed up in a costume of hypocritical religiosity and spirituality, as it was here in the case of Herod. Right? right? Herod said, oh, well, I really, I want to worship him just like you do. Right? Herod would have shown up at a Christmas Eve service, right? An Easter service. Because Herod, he, he had that veneer of, of faith, that veneer, that surface uh, uh, desire on the outside to worship. But we see that that hypocrisy was just a veneer, just a covering for a heart that hated the Christ child. There are others in whom this opposition shows up not as even hypocritical worship and religiosity, certainly not direct uh, opposition. It shows up as just indifference, apathy. How do we see that in the text? Well, notice that even after the Magi show up and the, the Jewish leaders affirm that Bethlehem is the birthplace of the Messiah, Something is conspicuous by its absence, isn't it? We, we see here in the text, or that is we don't see here in the text, we don't read of, of anyone but the wise men actually making the six-mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to find out if, in fact, the Messiah had been born there. So here are the ones, the Jews, supposedly God's people, who have the scriptures, and yet they show no desire in seeing if God's promises have finally come to pass. Think about that. There's utter apathy, utter indifference, utter boredom with the word of God, the promises of God, the fulfillment of God's promises. How does John put it in his gospel? And Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And yet here we see in Matthew chapter two that foreigners did receive him. Those who were, were least expected to worship the Christ child, 
they come to do so. While those who should have been awaiting his arrival, who should have been longing for him, are threatened by that arrival or ignore that arrival. And don't we still see these forms of opposition today? Don't we certainly still see direct opposition to Jesus, to his people, from those who refuse to accept the claims of authority that Jesus makes, who refuse to bow the knee to him and who seek to destroy him and his kingdom and his people? There's certainly still hypocritical opposition, right? Those who talk a good game, who will sit in church week after week or who will just show up to one or two services a year, but they know nothing of the power of godliness, nothing of the love for Jesus that the Holy Spirit puts into the hearts of God's people. Is that you this morning? Is there deep within actually an opposition to, to the gospel, an opposition to God? Even though you're here, you worship, you're, you're, you're saying things with your lips, you're, you're singing songs. But as Isaiah says, your heart is far from the Lord. So we see that direct opposition. We see hypocritical opposition. We see apathetic opposition, don't we? A rejection by distraction, by boredom, by indifference. Sure, 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 I'll listen to God's word, but I've got better things to do with my time than actually thinking about it and following it and doing what it says Right, letting Jesus change the way that I live or, or think. Matthew's point is this. Never be surprised by opposition to the gospel. Never be surprised by it. And, and always remember that there are many ways to be against Jesus. So let's, we must examine our hearts. We must be on the lookout for that subtle opposition that lurks even deep within the hearts of believers. Opposition and the birth of Jesus go hand in hand. May the Lord give us the ability to discern and to root out all opposition to him. So we've seen how the birth of Jesus is associated with the nations, associated with opposition. And finally, Matthew wants us to see that it's associated with worship. The lack of worship, of course, is the essence of opposition to Jesus in worship is precisely why the wise men came to find the infant king. You see it there in verse 2 and in verse 11. Look at the worship of the wise men. It was first sincere, right? filled with joy. Verse 10 says that when they saw the star again, they were, they were overjoyed. Matthew actually piles on words upon words to express the nature of their devotion to Jesus. They rejoiced with a great joy exceedingly. That's how you would literally translate the Greek. They rejoiced not merely because they saw the star in the sky again, but because they knew that the star was pointing them to the one who had captured their hearts, the one that they desired to, to live for and to, to worship. Their worship was sincere and filled with joy. It was also submissive. They come to the house where the baby was, they bow down and they worship him. And we don't know how much these wise men knew of the identity of Jesus as the son of God or of all that, that God would, had promised in the Old Testament. But by their bowing down, are they not expressing submission to him as their shepherd king, as their ruler? A submissiveness that we even see there in verse 12, right? when they heed the warning not to return to Herod. They obey God's word through their dream. So their worship was sincere, it was submissive, and last it was sacrificial, not only had they given up much to make that long journey, right, but 
But they gave him these costly gifts fit for a king. Opening their treasures, Russell 11 says, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Those latter two gifts are fragrant substances that came from certain trees in Arabia. They were gifts for a king. And notice how in the next section, when they have to flee to Egypt, think about how those gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh would have come in handy to provide financially for their fleeing, for their journey down to Egypt. They are giving sacrificially for the sake of Christ and for his family. What is Matthew showing us? But that through these wise men, Jesus is the king, clearly the king who is worthy of all of our worship. Jesus is the king who is worthy of all of our love, our devotion, our affection, who has the right to tell us what to do. He is the king who draws forth the deepest of sacrifices. Perhaps this past Christmas season, you read again or watched again the, uh, the, the old TV show, the, the Best Christmas Pageant Ever. If you ever have seen that or heard of it, you, you know that it tells the story of the herdmen's functional orphans who were, were thieves and liars and bullies. But one day they invade the church and they come to be a part of the annual Christmas pageant. During the, the pageant, as it's going on, Leroy Herdman, who happens to play one of the wise men in the pageant, decides he's not too happy with the gift of myrrh, right? That it's his job to give to Mary's child. And so he runs home in the middle of the pageant, runs home, grabs the, the, the turkey that they had received in their welfare basket and runs back to the church right, to present it to Jesus. After the pageant was over, the director said, hey, you can, you can take your turkey back. And he said, no, it's a gift. Right? You don't take back gifts. And the narrator, the little girl who narrates it, says it was the first thing he had ever given away in his life. The story of Jesus and his birth had transformed his heart, had made him sacrificial. Does it do that for us this morning? If Leroy Herdman was willing to sacrifice food to worship Jesus, what is God calling on us to sacrifice? You see, true worship of Jesus is never cheap. It's always costly. We may have to sacrifice our time, even our reputation, perhaps. We, we sacrifice our money and giving toward his kingdom purposes. We sacrifice our energy and our attention, even as we offer in corporate worship a sacrifice of praise. And of course, we sacrifice our own will, our own desire to obey our king. But as we sacrifice, we will find that Jesus is the source of truest joy. Jesus is the good shepherd king who was born in order that he might die, that he might lay down his life to save his sheep, who endured the opposition, the oppression, the judgment of men in order to die on the cross, to save the nations, to bring to himself those who were on the outside looking in, those who were unwashed and unclean, unworthy, so that you and I, so that we might know the forgiveness of our sins, so that we might worship him with all that we are, all that is within us, and that we might spread the glory of his name to the corners of the earth. These are the things associated with the birth of Jesus Christ, the nations, opposition, and sacrifice. Might the Lord work in our hearts 
as we come to his table, as we remember his death for us, may he motivate us and lead us to sacrificial giving, sacrificial living, so that the nations might turn from their opposition and come to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have sent your son into this world. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to endure the shame and the scoffing of those who crucified you. Thank you for coming and worshiping your father with your life and with your death so that we might be saved. Would you help us to understand our sin, to acknowledge it, and to rest our souls anew this day in your finished work. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.